strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. Appreciate you spending some time with us. Uh, we are waiting for a phone call from Congresswoman Debbie Lesko. We are going to have a conversation with if we're able to get her. Um, we had this set up uh, the other day, so hopefully she'll be calling in here in just a couple of moments to talk about her run for the uh, for the Maricopa County Supervisor seat that's being vacated at the end of this year. Clint Hickman has decided not to run again. There are going to be multiple people running. It's an important job. We'll talk about that, the government shutdown, which is, again, another topic that we've got to talk about, the possibility of a shutdown. Um, and what that would mean for all of us. And so uh, there's a lot of important things that are happening in Washington, D.C. They're going to affect us locally. So joining us right now is Congresswoman Debbie Lesko. Congresswoman, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me, Mike. It's a great privilege to be on your show. I, I want to start with your decision to not run again, your decision to leave Washington, D.C., because it surprised some people. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that decision making? What made you decide to leave D.C.? Yeah, the, the primary reason that I decided is because I miss my family. Um, in May 7th, it will be six years that I've served in D.C. And Congress people spend about, on average, three weeks out of every month uh, working in Washington, D.C. We fly back and forth uh, and, and to Washington, D.C. and back. And I always have to cram in seeing all my family in like a day or two. And... I would continue to sacrifice doing that if I felt that we were really uh, getting a lot of stuff done. But with a Democrat Senate, a Democrat president, um, it's hard to move the ball. The U.S. House of Representatives can stop bad things from happening, but it's really frustrating right now in Washington, D.C. Is it frustrating as well being a Republican representative and seeing sometimes the rift and the division within the party and the caucus in the House? Well, I wish we could unite because the Democrats, so they also have differences, but they always unite around a cause to push forward their radical agenda. And I really think Republicans need to do a better job of trying to unite. Now, we're just independent thinkers. We think differently than the Democrats, right? So there's a lot of different opinions. Um, and so I hope we can get it done for the sake of our country. So let's talk about some of the specifics. Let's start with the border. One of the frustrations I have is with both political parties that I think we now have an agreement. We've heard the president. We've heard people on his side of the aisle call the border a crisis, the border security issue a crisis. Everyone is calling it a crisis. There was a piece of legislation that did not see the light of day in the Senate, and it wouldn't have seen the light of day in the House. But it looked like a starting point. What is the holdup with getting both parties to sit down and try to hammer something out on the border security? security issue when it seems like everybody agrees now it's a crisis. Well, finally, Biden and the Democrats even say it's a crisis after all these years of saying there was no crisis, the border was secure. It's because it's election year and they know the polling is against them on border security. And so they're trying to change their tune. But I, I really don't believe them that they're actually one to secure the border because they're to this point, everything they've done has been for an open border. Now, in the U.S. House of Representatives, 
representatives, we passed a bill, H.R. 2, mm-hmm. which is a very strong border security bill. We did it last May of 2023. The Senate won't hear it. The problem with the Senate uh, bill that came out recently was that I think it would have been worse. It actually would have made the long-term situation worse because it would have put into law that it's okay that 4,999 illegal immigrants on average per day can cross our border. And and that right now, the law is very strong. It's just Biden isn't enforcing it. The law is if they come across claiming asylum, you're supposed to detain them. Right. But instead, the Biden administration is incentivizing all these people to cross our border. As you know, there's what, about eight and a half million people that have crossed our border since Biden has been in office. And this has just got to stop. So if we had passed that Senate bill, I think it would have actually made the situation worse and tied the hands for a Republican president who actually wants to secure the border in the future. But it was there a place as a starting point with that piece of legislation that you believe you could get the two sides to sit down and hammer out an agreement that isn't as as tough as H.R. 2, but is much better than what you saw in the Senate bill that there could have been an agreement this year? Well, that's always the hope, but I don't, I, I, quite frankly, I don't see it because President Biden on day one, he stopped construction of the border wall. He reversed the Trump policies. He didn't want to do remain in Mexico. He kept insisting until this election year that the border was secure. Everything was fine. There was no problem. We're making it all up. And now all of a sudden, because it's an election year problem for him, he finally admits that there's a crisis at the border. He has the laws in place right now, right today. He could reinstate remain in Mexico. He could do other things that Trump did to to solve the problem. But he won't. He won't. And his actions have speak louder than his words. Uh, Congresswoman Debbie Lesko is joining us for a few moments. Uh, very quickly, let me shift to the possibility of a government shutdown without a deal being made. Now, you've got uh, Senator Schumer in the Senate and you've got the Speaker of the House, Johnson, obviously pointing fingers at each other and blaming each other. Is there going to be something done? Are we going to see something happening with a CR, maybe something else to push this down the road further? Or are we really in danger of a shutdown this week? I wish I knew. You know, we had a Republican conference call um, just the other night and nothing came out of it. I mean, it was very disappointing. And that's one of the reasons that I have decided not to run for reelection. It's just very, very frustrating um, that, that we don't get a lot of information, even as members of the Republican Congress. Now, I understand that our speaker, who is a great man, has been really trying to negotiate border security in the budget. But, uh, you know, I don't know where that's going. Um, Everything, all of the negotiations were not revealed to me and the other members. And part of the reason, quite frankly, that the speaker can't say to even his own members what is exactly going on is because it gets leaked to the media. I mean, in our Republican conference meetings in Washington, D.C., everything that is being said by our speaker is being live tweeted by 
by media outlets. And so there's some kind of a person in our conference or a staff member that is leaking everything we say. So it's hard to strategize when everything's already out in the public. So I think that's why he's holding the cards close to his vest right now. All right. So let's talk about what's next before I let you go, because you're not even going to take a breath. You are jumping right back out of the frying pan into the fire. You're going to run for the West Valley supervisor seat. Um, why run for another political office? And, and uh, you know, I'm, you've got a lot of support behind you. But why do this now, getting out of the Congress, but jumping into local politics again? Well, Mike, I've been involved in the Republican Party um, politics for over 20 years. I've been a Republican precinct committeeman, so I am not going to stop doing it, right? And so I was retiring from Congress because I want to be close to my family. But all of a sudden, you know, Clint Hickman uh, says he's not running for re-election. A few people texted me and said, you should, you should consider doing this. And I thought about it, and I'm like, it's the same district. I know these people that I, I've served with them either in the for them either in the state legislature or in Congress. And so I know all these people. This is a natural fit and I know what the issues are in the West Valley, and I want to continue to help them. So all of a sudden, God has opened up this other path for me, and I'm really excited about it. I am really excited about it. Well, I wish you the best. I'm looking forward to having you back in Arizona, and hopefully we can get you in studio when you're here full time and kind of talk about your time in service with the legislature and and this run for office and kind of nail down some other things and what's motivating you and what you want to get done. But I appreciate the time today, and I look forward to talking to you in the future. Thank you so much, Mike, and thanks to your audience. All right, thanks a lot. That is Congresswoman Debbie Lesko. Coming up in a moment, the Phoenix Police Department is gaining officers for the first time in quite a while. We're going to talk about why that's happening. Crime and punishment in just a couple of moments. Values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks so much for being here. I appreciate you spending some time with the show. Um, a lot happening in the world, and a thank you to Congresswoman Lesko. A little update from Washington, D.C., and her reasons for leaving D.C. Um, headline, a mid-national police shortage, Phoenix um, manages to increase numbers of officers. This is a big deal because the Phoenix Police Department, I'll give you a little history if you're new to Arizona. Go back to when the market crashed, 07, 08 into 09. The Phoenix mayor at the time was Phil Gordon. Phil Gordon uh, is uh, is a Democrat, but Phil Gordon was also very, very pro-law enforcement. Son's a cop. Um, and so Phil and I shared that being pro-law enforcement part of it. But the city was in a very bad place financially, just like many jurisdictions across the country. And so the Phoenix Police Department and the Phoenix Fire Department and the unions that represent them plea for the Phoenix Police Department and, and the Fire Department Union. They sat down with city management. And they negotiated a deal to save the jobs of cops and firefighters in the city of Phoenix. And in part of that deal, they gave back real um, money. They gave back money. 
in compensation, and they also agreed to a hiring freeze. Well, that hiring freeze also didn't include attrition. In other words, when a cop left, whether the cop was fired, the cop retired, the cop went to another job, they didn't replace those cops. And so over a period of time, the city of Phoenix continued to get much bigger, but our public safety departments never grew. As a matter of fact, they shrunk. And they got much smaller. Now, both agencies, Phoenix Police and Phoenix Fire, have been sounding the alarm, no pun intended, on the need for public safety to hire. We've had Phoenix Fire on, and I'm going to continue down this road with them. The need for firehouses, you know, fire stations, equipment, and employees. We've got to have more people in public safety. The Phoenix Police Department, for the first time since 2019, is seeing growth in the agency. As the agency gets older, you have cops that are retiring. That's just the natural progression. But if you're not bringing in a younger generation, you are going to start losing people, and that's what's been happening. Police departments across the country, I'm reading very quickly from a story, have are facing hiring issues, retirement, COVID-19, diminishing benefits, extreme public perception of police from both the political right and left, and low unemployment have all played a part in the national crisis. The Phoenix Police Department... Um, they have changed their benefits and recruitment efforts, and they have seen they hired 182 officers and lost 155, leaving a net of 27 new officers. That doesn't sound like a lot, but it is a far cry from where it was. That is great news. Um, the You look at other agencies, when you go to East Valley cities, you'll see that many of them are not suffering shortages or as big a shortage as you would see in Phoenix. I'm going to tell you another key to this turnaround, and that is perception and uh, by the officers of how they are treated. And it isn't by how they are treated by you and by me. It's how city management views them. If I don't care what job you're in. Money matters. Money always matters. I think every one of us, I can prove it, uh, every one of us believes that we are at least a little bit underpaid. If you look at some of the world-class athletes um, that are making tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars, they have agents that argue for them for more money in a contract. And for you and I, we couldn't imagine that that many zeros at the end of a contract. But the belief that they are underpaid, even when they're making that kind of money, everyone feels as if they're a bit underpaid. Underpaid and underappreciated are two dangerous things in any organization. If you're working for a company or for an individual, if you're working somewhere and you feel like they don't respect you, and they don't appreciate you, you'll go somewhere else, even if you are making decent money. And when it comes to policing, let's be honest, the city of Phoenix Police Department, because it is a densely urban city that they are dealing with big city crime. Well, when you have cities across the valley, just go to the west for a few moments. When you've got Surprise and you've got Goodyear and you've got Buckeye, when you have these towns with expanding populations, you don't think that an experienced officer from the Phoenix Police Department will be snatched up in a minute, even if he or she wasn't making huge, uh, as much money as they did, let's say in Buckeye, as they were making in Phoenix, but they have a position of authority. They're well-respected. They're they're definitely appreciated for their years of experience. You don't think that that's attractive. They don't have to leave their homes. They don't have to leave the valley. They go to work at other cities, and that's what Phoenix has been dealing with. 
We've made some changes. We as in voters have made some changes on the city council. That's changed the city council's attitude towards policing. City management is a lot more complimentary. I've said before, the mayor of Phoenix and I have had some political disagreements on many things, but I've been to events with the mayor of Phoenix at police events, which I'm pretty loyal to, and she's been there as the keynote speaker and me as the MC. And she has been very supportive of the Phoenix Police Department. And that verbalization of support to management, to the rank and file officers, bolsters their confidence and it makes them feel appreciated. They understand from the community when you buy them lunch or you, you know, you thank them for their service. But to have their bosses, and I don't mean in uniform bosses, talking about the city management to support them and say, we're going to hold you accountable when you do something wrong. But we understand the difficulty of your job and we surely appreciate appreciate you for what you do goes a long way. And I think it's going a long way here with the city of Phoenix in a moment. Uh, we're going to talk about the government shutdown. We talked a moment or two with our, our Congresswoman Lesko about that, but there still is no deal for the shutdown. What happens next? We'll talk about it next. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. All right, as we've watched over the last years, if you pay any attention whatsoever to what happens in Washington, D.C., this is not the first nor the second nor the third time that we've seen this happen with the threat of a government shutdown. And everybody's exasperated at the dangers of what would happen if the government were to shut down. And each side of the aisle points the finger at the other side of the aisle about what they can do about these appropriations bills and get the spending done. Schumer in the Senate is very angry that the House won't bring the the foreign aid bills to the floor. He says they'll pass immediately with both Republican and Democrat support. And I will tell you, I think aid to Ukraine, and we're going to talk in a few minutes about Israel, I think all of that is very important on behalf of the American people. And I think that those are things that need to be done. But what's fascinating is we are not seeing the same emphasis on border security, which if you ask the vast majority of Americans, not say are they important or not important, but rank them in priority. I believe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I live in a bubble that I'm not familiar with. The majority of the American people would say our border security is at least as important as making sure that we get the aid to Ukraine that they need. We get the aid to Israel that they need. If you really want to talk about national security, it starts at our front door. And so that's a part of this. The other part is spending. We are running at it. You go and look at the. Um, if you do a search on, on a search engine, if you haven't paid very much attention to this, if you go and look at the wide gamut, you look at the diversity in the people that have been saying that the U.S. governmental spending is on an unsustainable path. The head of the Fed has said it. Um, leaders of business and industry have said it. We're talking about CEOs of companies that are former CEOs of companies like Home Depot. You know, barons of industry that understand this, the Congressional Budget Office, which is an absolutely nonpartisan office that just looks at numbers and tells you this is what the numbers say. All of them across all three of those sectors. And what's interesting about the Fed is the first thing that they said was, you know, we normally don't talk about policy, but 
Government spending in America is on an unsustainable fiscal path. Same thing the Congressional Budget Office said, the same thing leaders of business are saying. And yet this fight is about bring this to the floor and do that and you're not serious about this. All the childish arguments, both sides of the aisle that we've heard forever. If I'm uh, if I'm the Speaker of the House, if I'm Johnson, I'm talking to the American people about the amount of debt we've created and the amount of debt that if left unfettered would be created and continue to be created with no end in sight. That's what I would be doing um, if it were me. And um, the reason why uh, this is is is. It, is so frustrating for me is that when you look at what the debt is doing, we are we are piling this on our grandchildren. There are some difficult decisions that need to be made. Listen to the show. You know where I stand politically. You know how solid I stand politically on the right side of the aisle. But the frustration comes when you're only talking to your team of people. And the American people need to understand the disaster that the debt we're creating is. Chuck Schumer can talk all day long about partisan politics and the right wing this and everything else. And, but in the end, the American people can see the numbers. The American people can see the amount of debt that we are creating. What inroads are being made to reduce that, I mean, really reduce that spending. Not the, not the bookkeeping tricks that they do. So let me give you an example. If let's say as they project a budget for next year, let's say for the next fiscal year in 2025, let's say they're pred- they predict that they are they are saying we have got a 10 percent increase in spending in this particular government agency. So right now we're spending this many billions of dollars. Let's say it's 100 billion. I'm just giving you round numbers. And next year we're going to spend 110 billion dollars. Well, then they come back and they say, you know what? That's too much. We're going to cut. We're not going to spend 110. We're going to spend 105 billion. They say we've cut that spending by 5%. No, you haven't. You've increased it by 5% because you were going to do it by 10. But the bookkeeping trick is we've cut spending by 5%. No, you haven't. No, you haven't. And that's the stuff that's got to stop in Washington. Uh, Representative Lesko, Debbie Lesko, joined us, and I asked her, what happens? What is going to happen if we have this government shutdown? This is what she told us this morning. We had a Republican conference call um, just the other night, and nothing came out of it. I mean, it was very disappointing, and that's one of the reasons that I have decided not to run for re-election. It's just very, very frustrating um, that, that we don't get a lot of information, even as members of a Republican Congress. So is this going to be another kick the can down the road thing. Are we going to hear this, uh, you know, the the wringing of hands, the gnashing of teeth, the rending of garments, and then all of a sudden they're going to do a deal where for another three weeks or four weeks or two months, they're going to kick the can down the road. Is that what they're going to do? They've done this so many times. Can they do that again? What happens if the government shuts down? Are the, are the average Americans going to feel because they talk about military pay. And isn't it interesting? This is the one part of our federal government that every American should be paying attention to is when they talk about non-essential spending. Isn't it fascinating what people get paid and what people don't and what's considered uh, essential and non-essential spending? I think that's a fascinating study to begin with. The idea of a government shutdown If the American people were, in my opinion, awake 
about how wasteful and redundant the spending by our government was, we wouldn't be afraid of a government shutdown. We'd be explaining to them, if you don't make severe spending cuts, you're all going to be replaced in November. Every single one of you. And I guarantee you, they would come sprinting back to the table. They they continue the partisan fight in an election year to use it as a campaign speech without budging an inch. When both sides know the Republicans, the people voted the Republicans in charge of the House, and the people have given the Democrats the power in the Senate. Now, it's a tie, but because the president is a Democrat, the Senate is controlled by the Democrats. That is the way it is. That's what the American people have done. And so that's the framework that you have to work in. If it is that important that you get something done so the government doesn't shut down, then sit down and make sure you get it done. Finger pointing's not doing, uh, you're going to do us any good. So this is Congresswoman Lesko about the shutdown a little more. I understand that our speaker, who is a great man, has been really trying to negotiate border security in the budget. But, you know, I don't know where that's going. Um, Everything, all of the negotiations were not revealed to me and the other members. And part of the reason, quite frankly, that the speaker can't say to even his own members what is exactly going on is because it gets leaked to the media. And that's, you know, and then she went on to talk about that. But this is the issue of the negotiation point of view. We talked about the border and it's the same problem. Both sides have enough of a place of agreement. If they made the if they made the statement, we're going to get this done, they get it done. You heard Schumer do this in the Senate. Schumer said we're not leaving this chamber until we get a foreign aid package passed through this chamber. And we're not leaving until it gets done. And miraculously, they got it done. Now, why can't they do that with the border? Why can't they do that with spending? Why can't that be done in both chambers, by the way, if the emphasis and importance was put on it? It's just infuriating that it isn't. In a moment, we're going to shift gears and we're going to talk an update on what's going on in Israel because there's now progress, they said, in the possibility of a hostage negotiation that may lead to at least a ceasefire. We'll get to that coming up here in just one moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. So uh, Benjamin Netanyahu says hostage deal will delay a Rafa operation. This has been a very contentious idea, this, and here's why. Because as they pushed, as, as the beginning of the assault, as the beginning of the push into Gaza by the Israeli troops, by the IDF, they had warned ahead of time to civilians to flee northern Gaza. They gave they gave an opportunity. After watching what I watched in a video last week, which I talked about, and I don't want to go into detail about it anymore. It was just the most horrific thing I've ever seen is the brutality of the attacks on October 7th against innocent, unarmed people. And it was 47 minutes of the worst brutality I have ever seen in my life. In the days that followed that... The Israeli government had the presence of mind and I would say the presence of conscience to say if you are a civilian in Gaza, if you are a Palestinian civilian, go south because we're coming. And they waited. They gave them time to evacuate their civilians. Um, Civilians have been used as human shields. We know that that's true. And the Israelis pushed into Gaza. 
to to eliminate Hamas and the ability to ever attack people again. There's a new report that just came out about the brutality of the sexual assaults. And one of the things about this, there's, well, I should say two things about that 47-minute video that I watched. One of them that I'll never, ever forget is the joy in which these terrorists did what they did. There's a mob mentality, and I'm not making excuses. We understand that as this mob mentality grows, you get people get into a rage and they do outrageous things and horrible things. This wasn't that. This was joy. This was happiness. This was smiling faces and laughter and selfies after the most brutal things you can think of. That's one of them. The other thing about this is that what we saw was a minuscule amount of what actually happened, that they have decided the families and out of respect for the families that they did not show the sexual brutality of what happened, that we didn't see the sexual assaults. But there is a new report out about those assaults and about the gang rapes of women and the continuous sexual assault and then the cheering of people after they were taken into Gaza. They were then pulled out of Israel and these hostages were taken into Gaza. The beating to death of a, of a man over 80 years old, um, the continuous beating until he finally died. This is what they're facing. And I'll find this is something else that's interesting. Egypt, because if you go south, if you look at Gaza on the map and you look at going to the south, the southern border of Gaza is Egypt. And so there has been humanitarian aid that has gone into Gaza through Egypt. That's been negotiated. But the Egyptian government will not allow Palestinian refugees into Egypt. Now, what they're saying is they don't want to allow Palestinian refugees in because they're fearful that that Israel won't allow them back into Gaza after the war is over and they'll be stuck with them. But I will tell you, isn't it interesting that all of these Arab nations around there that are that are clamoring for Israel to stop with the genocide and all of these other things are not opening their doors to save Palestinian lives at the risk that they would be stuck with those people. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, I find that to be to be something that we all need to look at. Egypt is right there on the border. They could have opened the border and they could have set up camps to allow people to escape this. But instead, they said, no, you may they may not be able to go back. We might be stuck with them. So we would rather, again, if the accusation is genocide and homicide and civilian deaths, we would rather sit here and watch them die in Rafa and in other places in Gaza that allow them safe passage here because they may not be able to go back and we'd be stuck with them. That's the message. So taking a different kind of look at what's happening in this part of the world, it is more frustrating about young people. And I'm going to go as far as to say this. Many young people in America that are siding with the Palestinians, well-intentioned, that are believing based on what small amount of information and inaccurate as it is that they have, that they are doing the humane thing by calling the free Palestine and all of this and the occupation. When if you look for 10 minutes at reality of what's been done, your whole perspective changes. So there's a balance between why are we not showing these videos to the world and respect for the families that are still mourning the loss of people. This is still going on. It's still happening. But the idea that the Israelis are doing something, and I'm going to ask this question, why are you not hearing about, why am I not hearing about civilian deaths and genocide in Ukraine? Why is that not a front page story about the number of civilian deaths that have happened in that war?
it is it's too it's too much of a contrast to ignore. And and so when you stop and you look at this for what it really is, the Israelis were attacked. And in spite of this, bru- I mean, if it were if it was if it were my people, if this were another attack on America in the same way, there would be no warning days in advance. And especially when you see the videos of the people in the streets in Gaza cheering for the death and for the hostage taking and the beating and the raping, the joy in the streets of what had been done on October 7th. I don't know that I'd have mercy in my heart. I wish I would. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I know that's what I'm supposed to do. But the Israelis have done that from the beginning, and they're still paying a political price for it because of the inaccuracies of what the world sees. Just go and see some of the stuff for yourself, and you'll figure it out. Just after 10 o'clock, um, we are going to talk about the elections, a big victory in South Carolina. We'll talk results next.